0: read a text, and draw the theological principles from it. And then from there we will be, now we take those principles and we grasp the text in our own town. In other words, we're applying those things to our own daily situation. So it's a four-step process, and uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we've All these last uh, weeks that we've spent doing this, we've been in that first step. Um, the first step is undoubtedly the most... Um, Uh, The most detailed, the most difficult, um, and it takes the most time. So that's where we're at, that's where we're headed. Uh, I thought maybe a little image would be helpful for you. So, you know, I'm not just making stuff up on the spot. (laughs) There is a plan. All right, tonight we're going to uh, we're gonna talk about the grammatical historical method. I'll explain that, and then we will get into discussing the various genres of Scripture uh, that we find within the Bible. Um, but first, we need the reminder, of course, that, uh, that context is king. We say it time and again, context, context, context. So I want to give you an example of, uh, of when this becomes important. So if I tell you uh, we had a ball, what, what could I mean by that? If we just say that, we had a ball. Okay, we had a good time. I had an actual ball. Okay, what else? Okay, I went to a ball. We had a dance, okay? So let me read the sentence to you. We had a ball. Everyone came in their fanciest clothes and danced the night away. But since Cinderella didn't attend, we were disappointed. So when do we find out which ball we're talking about? Okay, we read the last sentence. So you said second line. What else? It's not really till the very last word, is it? We find out they were disappointed, so they weren't having a ball in terms of a great time, What kind of ball is this talking about? They're having a a dance, right? So context is king, and we have to remember that. I know we've said it 100 times. We'll probably say it 150 more uh, because this is where we end up um, uh, missing the mark in terms of our biblical interpretation. So um, one way to determine context is we apply what we call the grammatical historical method of interpretation. So... Uh, the grammatical part. This is what we've been working on the last few weeks. How does a larger text break up into units? So if I read a narrative portion of Scripture, so, for example, um, I want to read about um, oh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, we have a lengthy portion of Scripture. Maybe uh, we read the whole chapter. Now, within that chapter, we're going to be able to break that text down into smaller units. Um, What are those units? I want to look at the paragraphs. I want to look at the sentences. I want to look at the words and see what meanings are are found in those specific words. Uh, But all of this, how I do this, how I get there, is a function of what we'll talk about at length tonight. And that is genre. So, if I'm reading an epistle... I'm going to look at the paragraphs, right? A paragraph in a letter is a single unit of thought. It's supposed to be anyway, a well-written letter. Uh, and then we move to the next unit of thought, and that's how it's divided out. For poetry, poetry is divided out in stanzas. Um, so when you read, unless you have the New American Standard Bible, and this is the reason why I um, am a critic of the New American Standard. I think it's a great translation, literally, but... These issues exist. You don't see genre in it because it's not breaking out um, these um, these different parts of scripture the way uh, that they're intended to be. Um, so, if you look at, um, I'll just show you in mine. Uh, you see, in, you see in the book uh, in one of the psalms that. It's some lines only have one word. Some have three or four words. It's dividing it by stanza versus I turn to the Book of John, and it's in, it's just paragraphs, right? So uh, that's how poetry's broken out. So it's important to see that as we read. Uh, for narrative history, um, the way we determine uh, what the unit, how the units divide up, are specific events in the story. What is the climax? What is the plot? Who are the characters? All of these things are very important. So that's, uh, that's part of the grammatical part of our study. What's the general flow of the argument in the text you're looking at? If I'm going to isolate one verse, uh, hopefully I've taken the time to figure out what comes before it, what comes after it. Uh, some, of the, some of the biggest heresies in the world have come out of isolating verses without figuring out the context of them. So we need to be very careful in figuring that out. How are sentences structured? How are they connected? What is the individual meaning of the words used? That's what we've been spending time on the last few weeks. Looking at the pronouns, looking at um, uh, the, uh, looking at therefore and for and but and all of these great words that, uh, that have powerful meaning in the biblical text. We want to do that grammatical work. It's vitally important to our study of the scriptures. Uh, tied to that is the historical work. And by this we mean... How does what I'm reading now, how does this fit into the larger argument of this chapter? If I'm reading one or two verses or maybe even a paragraph, how does that fit in the entire chapter of what's going on? And from that chapter, how does that fit in this entire book? If I'm reading John chapter 3, how does this chapter fit within the book of John? How does it fit within the New Testament? And then, of course, how does it fit within the entirety of the Bible? We believe the Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a bunch of individual stories uh, that are completely unrelated to one another. It is one story from beginning to end. And who's it about? Jesus. Yes, very good. Sunday school answer. It's the right one. The Bible's about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And if we miss that, then we isolate these texts and we look at them and make them to say things they don't say. And so we need to see them in the context of the whole story. Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. This is very, very important that we see this throughout. And this is a part of determining this context. Are you aware of the historical context? For example, as I read about the Pharisees and Jesus interacting with them, who are they? If I know nothing about them, I just kind of get the impression that Jesus picked out a group of people he didn't, uh, he didn't particularly like for some reason, and he was beating up on them all the time, okay? Why? Why did he say what he said? Who were they? What were they doing? Uh, what rights did women have in the Roman world? And why was it so uh, countercultural for the Christians to come in and, and say the things they did about women actually exalting them and giving them rights, uh, what's the difference, as you read the Old Testament, between a concubine and a wife? It's a big difference. Okay? If you don't know anything of the historical context, uh, you're going to be lost as you read the Bible. It's very important to understand the historical context. Other issues of geography, politics, history, all of these things provide understanding. For example, when we read the story of, um, of Jonah, what's What's significant about the relationship between Tarshish and Nineveh? Where was he supposed to go? Okay, Nineveh. Right. So he was supposed to go to Nineveh, right? That's what God commanded him. But he set his sights on Tarshish, uh, which, if you uh, figure out where they are located geographically, they're not neighbors. <laughs> They're on the other side of the country. It's not, you know, it's not a couple towns over. He wasn't like, this is not like Rinkin Springfield. This is like Rinkin Los Angeles. He's trying to get as far away as he possibly could. That's significant as we read, okay? Those are the things we need to identify. So um, I just wanted to give you this to kind of have an understanding of as we're doing all this, this is why it matters and how it all comes together. This is a method of reading the Bible, grammatical, historical method. And part of that, tied to that, the big picture is when we read the New Testament, we are being shown the meaning of everything that is written in the Old Testament. We read from the New into the Old. Um, I think I mentioned to you guys before that if you ever see one of the... uh, Someone in the New Testament, one of the New Testament writers, quoting the Old Testament. Go in your Bible to that passage in the Old Testament and make a note. Uh, this is quoted in Second Corinthians five, whatever. Um, so when you read the Old Testament and you come across a passage, you can flip to where it is in the New Testament and read what they wrote because that's your interpretation. The Scriptures interpreting the Scriptures. The New Testament writer telling you this is what that meant back in Leviticus. I know you just wanted to skip right over it because you had a hard time reading it. But I'm really giving you the actual meaning of what that said. It adds a lot to our reading because we can see now the apostles are giving us an exposition of the scriptures of the Old Testament. So that's the grammatical historical method. That's um, um, how we're working through the scriptures. All right, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about genre. There are seven specific genres we find in Scripture. Uh, in these are subgenres. We're not going to go through all of those. Um, what will be beneficial to all of us in our biblical reading uh, and study is to understand these major genres. So uh, we've talked about this a little bit before. But not in any great depth. Um, what, what's the difference between reading uh, a letter and uh, poetry? Sure, exactly. someone writes me a letter, I'm going to take it at face value. I'm reading what you wrote and it, you meant to say what you said and I'm not having to read into that any way. And if I am, I'm probably making assumptions, and that's not love, according to First Corinthians 13. So I want to take your letter at, first, at face value. Versus if you write me a poem, um, I'm going to assume that within that poem, there's going to be some uh, symbology, there's going to be some uh, figurative language. I need to work through those issues. So if you wrote me a letter that talked about singing trees, um, I would probably wonder um, what kind of hallucinogens you were on. Um, but if you're writing me a poem and you're talking about singing trees, I understand there's some figurative language there. So genre is very, very important. And that's uh, where we're headed. What genres are in the Bible and how do we look at them? The first one And uh, most prominent in the Bible is the genre of narrative. 40% of the Old Testament is narrative, 60% of the New. Uh, All the Gospels are narrative. The book of Acts is narrative uh, in the New Testament. All right, so here's what we do as we read narrative portions of Scripture. And by narrative, we're talking about um, uh, typically chronological, not always, but typically this happened, then this Uh, the stories of the Bible, uh, generally um, the things that we find easiest to talk about because we're kind of oriented toward story. We like movies, we like TV shows and books, fiction novels, things like that. We're story-oriented people, and most cultures are, so narrative is most easy for us. So what do we pay attention to? The story itself, the details... And biblical narrative uses the same devices that any other narrative uses. So when you read a fiction book, I don't do it a lot, but I just did one recently. And I found myself the whole time, uh, okay, I've got to keep track of who this is and their relationship to this person and how that relates to this person so all the, this is one of the reasons I don't read fiction, because in the end, I'm trying so hard to remember all this, but I remember uh, it doesn't matter they're not real people. <laughs> uh, it, but uh, nevertheless, it, I think it's important to develop our creative bone. But um, we want to use those tools that we use when we're reading fiction. In the same way that we would read the nonfiction narrative of the scriptures. If you're reading a history book, you want to think, okay, dates are important, names are important, relationships to one another are important. Uh, How all that unfolded from this part to that, that's important. Uh, The plot of the story. So what do we look at for plot? We want to know who's talking to whom and and why. Uh, What are the shifting points of view? What's the climax of this story? So, uh, someone give us uh, um, give us a, a brief, just as brief as you can, summary of uh, Genesis one, two, and three. Okay, God said it and it was done. But chapter three, too, add that. Okay, and then what? There we go. <laughs> All right. So God created. He created. All things to include man, woman, called it all very good. Man and woman rebelled, ate of the tree, mankind fell. God inter- curses the serpent, curses woman, curses man, introduces the gospel. And uh, here we have a narrative, right? <laughs> That's why I get paid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have characters here, right? We've got God, Adam, Eve. Jesus, okay? We see them at play here, the serpent. Uh, we, have, uh, we have story development. God said, let there be light, and there was. Uh, God called it this. God said, let us make man in our image. So we have, all of, we, have, we have dialogue going on, right? Elements of a good story. We have a climax, right? We have Eve encountering the serpent who is tempting her to eat of the, eat of the, the fruit of the tree. So there's a plot. The plot is thickening, right? Uh, and then uh, what is she, she eats of it. And so now we're at the climax of the story. We see the conclusion of what happens, and it unfolds the rest of the story. So in a general sense, we can say the Bible as a whole is narrative. It's a narrative story from beginning to end. Again, creation, fall, redemption, and in the end, all things are reconciled and made new in, in Christ. That's a narrative story, but we see all the characters at play and how that works and the climax and the plot and the resolution to the story. So just those three chapters of Genesis, we saw that you can do that with any story in the Bible that's written in narrative form. So we want to look at that character development, Uh, literary devices that are used, and uh, we won't talk about these tonight. Um, but uh, if you know anything about them, inclusio and uh, chiasm, uh, these are literary devices that are used in narrative often. Um, scene arrangements. Is there, a, uh, is there some kind of flashback? Is there some kind of cutaway to another story? Are these things, uh, as, they're, as the, the scene is being laid out for what's going on, does, does the Bible... Uh, push pause on one scenario and jump to another one so we can see what's going on and then come back again. You see that a lot in, uh, in reading any kind of uh, novel or anything else. So all of these things are very uh, important as we read narrative. Now, something important to remember as we read narrative that the person who's writing had to be very selective in what they were writing. Uh, most ultimately, they were selective Uh, in that they were being guided by the Holy Spirit and they wrote only what was necessary for us to know according to God. But um, that tells us that every detail that we find in Scripture is important. So when you get to the book of Numbers and you start reading all these lists of names and genealogies, uh, that's important stuff. It's really important stuff. And we'll look at it and say, man, I don't... I don't know why I need to know that. um, Achabaga was the son of uh, Dudad, um, but uh, I'm reading that right now, and I don't figure out how all this. Well, if you understand how all of that works together, and the the thread that's going through these genealogies, typically, if you put that in the the narrative of the whole Bible, those genealogies are leading their way to whom? To Christ. I'm just throwing softballs to you tonight. (laughs) They lead us to an understanding of, oh, Jesus really is rooted in this whole story. And these people matter. And the tribes they were in, they matter. And this is what God did with those people. And we see those characters come up again and again. So those details are important. How they built the, the tabernacle, the fabrics that were used, the posts that were used, the eyelets on, uh, on the, the covering of the tent, the altar and what it looked like. All this is very important uh, detail. Um, how, does, how does this story connect with the story that was told beforehand? How do we tie all that together? What's the point of the narrative in, in light of the purpose of the writing of the whole book? Why did, why did the author find it important right here in this place to tell this story? Okay, so all of these sort of things are, are questions that we need to ask. So uh, the story is not an end in itself. And it's not necessarily the point of the story either. So let me give you an example of this. Um, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat... And uh Jesus is asleep at the front of the boat and the wind and the waves are coming and crashing in on the boat and the disciples get scared. What do they do? They wake up Jesus. What do they say to him? Yeah. Save us. Uh we're <laughs> we're about to drown. We're going to die. Help us. Uh so Jesus stands up. Uh he rebukes the wind and the waves. Storm ceases immediately. Um I think the story would be great if it ended like, and Jesus laid down and went back to sleep, like it was hey no big deal. <laughs> uh, but Jesus rebukes them a little bit, right? You have little faith, right? Okay. What is the story about? What's that? Why why is that story in the Gospels? Is this is this about? Go ahead, Jeannie, What are you going to say? Okay. Okay? So are you saying this story is about God? Yeah. About the divinity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus. So, this story, it's not about Jesus calmed the storm on the sea. Jesus will calm the storms in your life. This story is not about me. It's about the power of the sovereignty of Jesus as our Lord. That's what the story is about. Now, are there some principles that can be drawn from that? Yeah, absolutely. But when I read, I need to look at every story in light of what is the big picture of the Bible. Is the big picture, what is the big picture of the Bible telling me about myself? Okay, yes. <laughs> that I am uh, I'm broken... Twisted uh evil, wicked uh deceptive, um, you name it, the Bible pretty much pins that on me, um and in the end, I need Jesus, who is presented in the Bible as how, perfect, Lord, Savior, God, creator, sovereign, word, okay, so I get a picture of Jesus, I get a picture of me, and the two don't look a whole lot like each other. And one needs the other, and the other one doesn't need the other one, right? I need Jesus, but he doesn't need me. Okay, that's the big picture narrative of the Bible. I need to read every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, every sentence of the Bible with that reality in mind. I'm broken, sinful, I hated God, and he redeemed me through Jesus Christ. I need to know that, remember that, That is on every page of the Bible. That's the reality of the gospel and how it comes to bear on our lives. If I lose sight of that, I'm going to come to all these crazy conclusions about why specific stories are in the Bible. Uh, Jesus turned five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Is this a story about sharing with your friends? (laughs) No, but... Sadly, how many children's Sunday school classes get the moral lesson of Jesus is telling us to share? Is uh, the men who bring their friend and cut a hole in the roof of the building that Jesus was in because they couldn't get him in through the front door? He's a crippled man; he's on his bed. And they lower him down into the roof uh, through the roof so that he can uh, heal the man. Uh, is that a story about being a good friend that'll go the extra mile? <laughs> no. It's, they understood the power and the sovereign ability of Jesus to heal a man that they were going, at all costs, they were going to bring their friend to do whatever it took to get around this man named Jesus because he can do this and nobody else can. It's about Jesus. And as soon as we turn it to make it about something else, we've lost the point of what the writer of the scriptures is trying to convey. And so it's very, very important as we read narrative that we always bring this to bear on the text. If we don't, we're going to lose it. Any questions about narrative? All right, parables. Parables um, are fun, parables are sometimes confusing and difficult. The most important question, we've talked about this briefly before, the most important question to ask of every single parable is what is the main point? Sometimes there's a few points, but typically there's one main point. We need to narrow in on that point and figure out uh, how it relates to what is being told. Um, remember the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the repetition of words in various sentences. It really comes uh, to be very important when it comes to parables. Uh, What is a parable? Let me ask that, just so I don't assume we all are on the same page here. What is a parable? Okay, it's a short story. Is it it a true story? There's truth contained within the story, obviously. Okay, good. It's a story that's a representation of the truth. But the characters are probably made up. um, And they point to a bigger reality, right? Jesus told many, many, many parables. Um, So as we read the parables, we need to figure out why is he telling the story? It's an illustration is what he's doing. He's telling an illustration um, to make his bigger point. So the conclusion of every parable, the main point of every parable, is usually found in that conclusion. And it usually centers on the nature of the kingdom. As Jesus always, you know, in a lot of his the kingdom parables, the kingdom of God is like, and then he goes on to tell a story. Or, it's about the king himself. Uh, a man had two sons. Who's the man? God, right? God is the man. In the parable of um, the parable of the prodigal son, the man is God the Father, and the sons are us. One's the uh, legalistic, uh, pharisaical type. The other one is a wayward child who comes to his senses and returns to the Father. Um, So parables fall in one of two categories. It's either about the kingdom of God, whether or not we're in it or out of it, and what it's like, or it's about the king himself. Um, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure buried in a field. He covered it up. He went and sold all that he had so that he could go and purchase the field. That's the parable Jesus told. That's it. Well, what is he telling us? So what is it about, the king or the kingdom? The kingdom of God is like... <laughs> it's about the kingdom, right? Right? Okay, what's going on? A man. You have a picture of a man walking into a field. He's maybe consider. He's either just walking or he's considering buying the land or something. Um, oh, look down. Oh, there's a treasure buried here. So what does he do? I'm gonna cover this up a little bit. I'm gonna um, maybe drop something here so I can remember where it is. Um, I want to buy this land. Obviously, he saw what it was. It was very valuable. So valuable that he goes and sells everything that he owns, so that he has enough money to go buy this field. And he buys it. And this uh, this is the story that Jesus tells and relates to the kingdom of God. What in the world? What do the two have to? Do? What's the kingdom of God have to do with a man who uh, sells everything he has to buy a field? What is he saying? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so there is a, there is a picture here of. Uh, of the treasure that is given to us uh, in Christ. Absolutely. The other side is is, uh, is what um, what is telling us too. So we recognize the treasure of Christ as we identify what the kingdom of God is. And as we do, we give all in order to pick up our cross and follow the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the parable of the talents, yeah. I want to, I want to, I'd like to read it in order to do that. It's going to take us that way. So when we, we're going to come back through the genres and we're going to look at each one a little more specific and read examples of them. So remember it, write it down and remind me of it and we'll use that one as we look at them, okay? Um Something to remember in a parable is the literary context. Nine times out of ten, as you read a parable, it's in response to something that Jesus is dealing with at that point in time. So, uh, typically you're going to see in a parable, Jesus was talking to his disciples, or Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. And as he was talking, he said, um, uh, he, he tells the story of... Um, the Good Samaritan. That's a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, who was Jesus talking to when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan? The Pharisees. Why, why, did he, why did he tell that parable to them? And why did they respond with such hatred? Okay. It was about the fact that they were too high on their horse. And he even used the picture of a man who was riding on a big horse. Um, to stop and take care of um, the uh, the man who was beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, but he didn't go. He, he he didn't stop there. He went a little bit further. What's significant about the man who was beaten and bloodied on the road? Was he a Jew? He he was he was a man that was to them uh, in their day. He would have been a half breed he was part jew part gentile he was uh, he was uh not someone they had anything to do with so not only would they have rode past him and not touched him and had anything to do with him they probably would have seen him coming up and they would have they would have gone way like when you're driving a car and there's a biker using their legal 5 feet in the road remember that's that's the law you're allowed 5 feet on the road yeah uh when <laughs> Yeah, you might nudge him a little bit. Uh, what do you do? You, you, you go way out in the other lane, right? That's, that's what they would do. They're, they're going way around it, okay? So he is slapping them right across the face and saying, This is you. And uh, there's this man, a Samaritan, who came. Uh, did they, were they particularly fond of the Samaritans? <laughs> no, they hated them. They hated them at all costs. Talk about avoiding someone. They, like, they, would go, they would intentionally make their journey longer to bypass Samaria altogether. You see why historical context is coming into play here? If I just heard the parable of the Good Samaritan without any cultural historical context to come to play on it, uh, the parable would not have very much meaning. But when I figure that out, and I couple that with the reality that he's talking to Pharisees, He's rebuking them because of their foolishness. Uh, Then I can realize why when it's all said and done, he's like, "Uh, here's the story. Take that. And they rip their clothes and they scream at him. And every time he tells one of these, they say, they kind of get in a huddle and say, "Uh, how are we going to kill this guy? We see that all the time after he tells a parable, right? And then they plotted amongst themselves how to uh, kill Jesus. Um, So the literary context is very important. We're going to figure out who he's talking to, why he's talking to them, why he's telling them that specific story. It's going to help us to determine the meaning of it all. Parables can be difficult because, uh, as Jeannie pointed out with one parable, um, (laughs) people will come to all kinds of crazy conclusions about what the parables mean. That's why context has to be king in this regard, uh, or else we're going to draw all kinds of crazy conclusions. Any thoughts, questions about parables? Yeah. Sure. That's. It's probably because that's most of the time how we hear them. That's how we read about them. Um, no, those are. We want to teach our children to share. We want to teach our children to help someone, uh, but what we don't want to teach our children is to use the Bible to say something it's not saying. That's the problem, is that it's not actually saying. Um, I don't want to turn to the text that that don't say what uh, I'm making it say in order to teach my children to do a good thing. Instead, I would probably turn to uh, what God requires of us in the Ten Commandments or something along those lines. Or how do I love my neighbor? Well, I share with them and I care for them. That's where I would go. Instead of, hey, Jesus made five loaves and two. He did this because he loved the people and wanted to share with all of his friends. I'm missing a huge picture here. The dude just fed 5,000 people with nothing. That's amazing. If I'm going to boil that down to, uh, you know, feed your neighbor, or give your neighbor an egg when they come to ask to borrow one, like uh, we're missing something here. So I don't want to turn to text that means something entirely different because what we're setting them up for is this very reality you've brought up is I never knew any different. I thought that's what they were about. Another, another example of that is um, the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will do this. Blessed are the righteous, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for this will. Uh, Is that, are are the Beatitudes telling us, this is the way to be, so go do that and be that way? Or are they telling us something completely different? If you are a part of the kingdom of God, then this will be evident in your life. There's a big difference. You see the difference? I'm not saying go and do and be, because what's the problem with that? It's works, and I can't go and do and be. Instead, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are, if the Lord has transformed your heart and you're a part of the kingdom of God, you will be humble. You will be meek. You will this and that. You will inherit uh, you will inherit the earth. What is that? The new heavens and the new earth. You will you will be with the Lord in all of this. If you suffer, uh, you will uh, be careful. All of these things are promises. The Beatitudes are promises. We've taken the promises of God and turned them into law. <laughs> we've taken a very beautiful thing the Lord has given us in order to encourage us and help us in our journey that gets difficult sometimes, and we've turned them into something that says... Be this, do this, and we forget to say, oh, by the way, you can't. Jesus did it on your behalf, and now you can walk in that. See, the problem, uh, that's the same problem that comes when we read the parables wrongly and interpret them wrongly. Any thoughts, questions? hate to cause you to go home and blow up all your children's Bibles, but... <laughs> often the case. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, that was one of his purposes. He said that very clearly, right? I think we talked about that before. I meant to mention it in here. Um, yeah, Jesus, uh, the first uh the uh, disciples, why do you why don't you just tell us what you want to tell us? <laughs> You are confusing us, we don't really understand what in the world you're talking about half the time uh yeah i know i'm I'm telling these to confuse these Pharisees so they don't really understand. Um, let those who have ears let them hear. Let those who have eyes let them see uh those who have hearts to understand, sure. Let me give you a good example. I brought this up with my uh, students uh, in the class I teach today. Um, you guys follow the Kirk Cameron, Pierce Morgan debacle? No? Okay. Uh, okay, Kirk Cameron was interviewed. You know, Kirk Cameron, everyone, Growing Pains, yeah. Devout, devout Christian, uh, very solid dude. Um, he was being, he just, uh, a new movie coming out. So he's being interviewed by Pierce Morgan. Everyone knows who he is the pompous, arrogant Englishman, uh, news anchor on CNN. Uh, So he's interviewing Kirk Cameron about this movie that is coming out. So Pierce Morgan asks a few questions about the movie, and then he just... So, Kirk, what do you think about homosexual marriage and homosexuality? (sighs) Okay. Uh, Nothing at all to do with the movie. So Kirk Cameron is here on CNN, two and a half, three and a half million viewers. Uh, being cornered, Pierce Morgan knows exactly what Kirk Cameron thinks. He's a Christian, very outspoken about it. Uh, he says, "So, Kirk, tell me what, you, what do you think about uh, what do you think about gay marriage? And uh, do you think homosexuality? You think it's a sin?" So Kirk sits there for a minute and he says, uh, "Pierce, I, I'm I'm not. I don't approve of gay marriage. I don't I don't think it's right." Um, I think homosexuality is, um, it is unnatural and it is destructive to a culture. Um, so that was his first response. And Pierce kind of pushed him more and more and everything else. Well, why didn't, why didn't Kirk just say, answer his question, yes. Is this a sin? And why didn't Kirk just say, yes, it's a sin? What's loaded into that question that's ready to spring? And why was he wise in answering it the way he was? This all relates to this issue of the hidden parables. Right. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. Yeah, it does. Um, Go ahead, Donnie. exactly he's giving the con- he's telling him what kind of ball it is he's providing the context does the bible talk about homosexuality as being destructive and unnatural romans chapter 1 that's how paul describes it and so instead of just saying yes pierce it's a sin he provided the context he took away their perception of what sin is, and he said, let me define it for you. Here's what it is. Uh, so the way that he answers this question is in, in the form of, you have all these preconceived notions about what I'm going to say, who I am, what a Christian is, how all of this goes, uh, but I'm going to answer it in a way that is going to throw you completely off track to where um, you're not going to be able to go back to where you wanted to run with this thing. Uh, I'm going to answer it in a way to where you... Uh, I'm answering a fool in his folly. And so we have to recognize that when it comes to truth, we, we embody these principles that Jesus applied when using... Why did he use the parables? Well, because he's communicating in a specific way to a specific people because, in the end, they're going to draw some conclusions that um, are contrary to what he is communicating. Uh, another way he did this, for example, um, Hey, teacher, tell us, what is the greatest commandment? <laughs> what kind of what kind of question is that? Because uh, they're waiting for him to name one so that they can say, um, Oh, so you think one commandment is greater than all the rest, so we can break the other commandments? Uh, that's not how he answers, though, does he? He says, uh, the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, in other words, uh, commandments 1 through 4. Uh, and the second is like it, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, commandments 6 through 10. They were waiting for him to say, um, I don't know, 6th commandment. Uh, he says, no, they're all, <laughs> they're all important. Let me just summarize them for you. Uh, they're left with Nothing. How do I respond now? So he did that with parables. He did that in the way that he responded to a fool in his folly, as the Proverbs tell us. So we need to take note of that. These are the principles that we draw out of parables the right way. Not these moral things that we want to make them say, uh, but, um, but rather, how did he communicate it? Why did he communicate it that way? And how can we utilize that as we dialogue with people about the kingdom or the king? Um, and, and so that was a little bit of a diversion, but it's important. Right. The prophet Nathan came to David and he told him the parable of, um, of a prized sheep being stolen by another man. What would you do? What would you do, David? I'd kill the man. I'm talking about you, you dummy. Um, (laughs) repent. Um, yeah, same thing. That's a parable being used there, so. And by the way, if you're interested, you can go see now, um, there's probably been five or six celebrities who found it very important to respond to Kirk Cameron. Um, Pierce Morgan now, like he makes it part of his interview of anyone now that comes on. Hey, so did you catch my conversation with Kirk Cameron? What do you think about that? Uh, of course, he's asking people who are like outspoken homosexuals and activists in this whole, you know, everything. So now he's been accused of, of hating people. He never said anything about hating anybody. He's been accused of um, thinking it's more important to uh, to believe and understand what people who lived two thousand years ago in Jerusalem, who didn't even have running water or flushing toilet, think than what people today. He's accused of ignoring science, which I've yet to see any scientific evidence uh, that you'd want to point to that said homosexuality is natural. Um, the whole childbearing thing, kind of. You know, I don't know, it doesn't work. Um, uh, you can go down there. They've accused him of all sorts of things he never, ever, ever said. Uh, so no matter how you answer it, a fool's response is going to be a fool's response. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell released her statement today, uh, rebuking him on her show very publicly. Um, you know, so it's, it's, I am so thankful for him. And for what he's said and how he's taking the stand, and he did it in a very loving manner, and he did it in a biblical manner. Because if you listen to what he said, at the end of it all, he says, "Listen, here's the deal: every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us needs a savior, and I find myself at the top of that list. And so I'm not I'm not isolating people into specific groups and dividing them out and saying this group this and that group that. I'm saying all of us need a savior." and we 're all sinners, and i 'm foremost uh, and that 's the reality, so he brought the gospel to bear on the situation, and watching people respond is very interesting they're they're they 're trying to paint a picture of a jesus now you 'll if you go listen to their responses, as far as I can see, Jesus tells us that we 're not supposed to judge other people uh, Jesus says that we 're supposed to uh, we're supposed to uh, love people and be accepting and tolerant and all these sorts of things. So so the Jesus who calls us a sin is telling us that we're not supposed to call it a sin? How's that? I don't know. So anyway, it's very interesting. It's been going on the past couple of weeks. Um, check it out. But I think he did a great job. Oh, absolutely. Sure, that's the sad thing of it all. It's the, sad, the sad thing of it all is they're, they're lost and now they've <laughs> revealed it all the more. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, here's the irony of it all. Their whole battle cry is tolerance, tolerance, acceptance, acceptance, except for the guy who says that what our, toler- our idea of what uh, is right and true is wrong. We tolerate everyone except for, of course, those who disagree with us. Even one guy went as far as saying, um, you can think those things, think them all you want, but you can't say them. (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. See how it works now. Exactly, that's what he was saying. I get to say whatever I want, but if you disagree with me, you don't get to say that. All right. That was totally what we were talking about tonight. <laughs> Good, let's pray. Lord, thanks a lot for uh, our time tonight. We're very grateful uh, to be together, to study together, to learn, to grow, um, to be challenged in how we read the Bible, study the Bible, understand the Bible, and apply the Bible to our lives. Thankful for great examples uh, today of individuals who have been given a platform to speak the truth into the lives of millions of people on national television or uh, that they would take the opportunity to respond to hostile interviewers in a way that Jesus would do the same in the way that Jesus responded to the Pharisees in the way Jesus responded to the fools in his day We're so thankful for that example to look at and point to and to see um, how very applicable the reality of your word is in every element, every aspect of our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you make us all to be loving, gracious, humble people who uphold the truth of the scriptures, who respond to hostility with wisdom, with truth, with love. And yet we do not waver from the reality of what the scriptures call evil and good. Help us to be those kind of people. And help us to understand and know and read the scriptures in a way that, that we can derive those, uh, those conclusions. So Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. We're grateful. We pray for a good rest of our week into the weekend. or we'll prepare our hearts for worship on Sunday as we come together on the Lord's Day. Uh, to bring glory to you in our prayers and our singing and the preaching of your word and the taking of the Lord's Supper, all of these things so vital uh, to our continued growth as your people. So bless us in our preparation for that great day, for that great hour. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night.